Chapter Three of Mrs. Skaggs' Husbands and Other Stories by Bret Hart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Princess Bob and Her Friends. She was a Klamath Indian. Her title was, I think, a compromise between her claim as daughter of chief and gratitude to her earliest white protector, whose name after the Indian fashion she had adopted. Bob Walker had taken her from the breast of her dead mother at a time when the sincere volunteer soldiery of the California frontier were impressed with the belief that extermination was the manifest destiny of the Indian race. He had with difficulty restrained the noble zeal of his compatriots long enough to convince them that the exemption of one Indian baby would not invalidate this theory, and he took her to his home a pastoral clearing on the banks of the Salmon River, where she was cared for after a frontier fashion. Before she was nine years old, she had exhausted the scant kindliness of the thin, overworked Mrs. Walker. As a playfellow of the young Walkers, she was unreliable. As a nurse for the baby, she was inefficient. She lost the former in the trackless depths of a redwood forest, she basely abandoned the latter in an extemporized cradle hanging like a chrysalis to a convenient bough she lied and she stole two unpardonable sins in a frontier community where truth was a necessity and provisions were the only property worse than this the outskirts of the clearing were sometimes haunted by blanketed tattermalions with whom she had mysterious confidences Mr. Walker more than once regretted his indiscreet humanity, but she presently relieved him of responsibility, and possibly of blood guiltiness, by disappearing entirely. When she reappeared, it was at the adjacent village of Logport, in the capacity of housemaid to a trader's wife, who, joining some little culture to considerable conscientiousness, attempted to instruct her charge but the princess proved an unsatisfactory pupil to even so liberal a teacher she accepted the alphabet with great good humor but always as a pleasing and recurring novelty in which all interest expired at the completion of each lesson she found a thousand uses for her books and writing materials other than those known to civilized children she made a curious necklace of bits of slate pencil she constructed a miniature canoe from the pasteboard covers of her primer. She bent her pens into fishhooks, and tattooed the faces of her younger companions with blue ink. Religious instruction she received as good-humoredly, and learned to pronounce the name of the deity with a cheerful familiarity that shocked her preceptress. Nor could her reverence be reached through analogy. She knew nothing of the great spirit, and professed entire ignorance of the happy hunting-grounds. Yet she attended divine service regularly, and as regularly asked for a hymn-book, and it was only through the discovery that she had collected twenty-five of these volumes and had hidden them behind the woodpile that her connection with the First Baptist Church of Logport ceased. She would occasionally abandon these civilized and Christian privileges, and disappear from her home, 
returning after several days of absence with an odor of bark and fish, and a peace offering to her mistress in the shape of venison or game. To add to her troubles, she was now fourteen, and according to the laws of her race, a woman. I do not think the most romantic fancy would have called her pretty. Her complexion defied most of those ambiguous similes through which poets unconsciously apologize for any deviation from the Caucasian standard. It was not wine nor amber-colored. If anything, it was smoky. Her face was tattooed with red and white lines on one cheek, as if a duo-toothed comb had been drawn from cheekbone to jaw, and, but for the good humor that beamed from her small, berry-like eyes and shone in her white teeth, she would have been repulsive. She was short and stout. In her scant drapery and unrestrained freedom she was hardly statuesque and her more studied attitudes were marred by a simian habit of softly scratching her left ankle with the toes of her right foot in moments of contemplation. I think I have already shown enough to indicate the incongruity of her existence with even the low standard of civilization that obtained at Logport in the year 1860. It needed but one more fact to prove the far-sighted poetical sagacity and prophetic ethics of those sincere advocates of extermination, to whose virtues I have done but scant justice in the beginning of this article. This fact was presently furnished by the princess, after one of her periodical disappearances, this time unusually prolonged. She astonished Logport by returning with a half-breed baby of a week old in her arms. That night a meeting of the hard-featured serious matrons of Logport was held at Mrs. Brown's. The immediate banishment of the princess was demanded. Soft-hearted Mrs. Brown endeavored vainly to get a mitigation or suspension of the sentence. But, as on a former occasion, the princess took matters into her own hands. A few mornings afterwards, a wicker cradle containing an Indian baby was found hanging on the handle of the door of the First Baptist Church. It was the Parthian arrow of the flying princess. From that day, Logport knew her no more. It had been a bright, clear day on the upland, so clear that the ramparts of Fort Jackson and the flagstaff were plainly visible twelve miles away from the long curving peninsula that stretched a bared white arm around the peaceful waters of Logport Bay. It had been a clear day upon the seashore, albeit the air was filled with the flying spume and shifting sand of a straggling beach whose low dunes were dragged down by the long surges of the Pacific and thrown up again by the tumultuous trade winds but the sun had gone down in a bank of fleecy fog that was beginning to roll in upon the beach. Gradually the headland at the entrance of the harbor and the lighthouse disappeared. Then the willow fringe that marked the line of Salmon River vanished, and the ocean was gone. A few sails still gleamed on the waters of the bay, but the advancing fog wiped them out one by one, crept across the steel-blue expanse, swallowed up the white mills and single spire of Logport, and, joining with reinforcements from the marshes, moved solemnly up the hills. 
Ten minutes more, and the landscape was utterly blotted out. Simultaneously, the wind died away, and a death-like silence stole over sea and shore. The faint clang high overhead of unseen Brent, the nearer call of invisible plover, the lap and wash of indistinguishable waters, and the monotonous roll of the vanished ocean were the only sounds. As night deepened, the far-off booming of the fog-bell on the headland at intervals stirred the thick air. Hard by the shore of the bay, and half-hidden by a drifting sand-hill, stood a low, nondescript structure, to whose composition sea and shore had equally contributed. It was partly built of logs and partly of driftwood and tarred canvas. Joined to one end of the main building, the ordinary log cabin of the settler, was the half-round pilot-house of some wrecked steamer, while the other gable terminated in half of a broken whale-boat. Nailed against the boat were the dried skins of wild animals, and scattered about lay the flotsam and jetsam of many years' gathering. Bamboo crates, casks, hatches, blocks, auras, boxes, parts of a whale's vertebrae, and the blades of swordfish. Drawn up on the beach of a little cove before the house lay a canoe. As the night thickened and the fog grew more dense, these details grew imperceptible, and only the windows of the pilot house, lit up by a roaring fire within the hut, gleamed redly through the mist. By this fire, beneath a ship's lamp that swung from the roof, two figures were seated, a man and a woman. The man, broad-shouldered and heavily bearded, stretched his listless powerful length beyond a broken bamboo chair, with his eyes fixed on the fire. The woman crouched cross-legged upon the broad earthen hearth, with her eyes blinkingly fixed on her companion. They were small, black, round, berry-like eyes, and as the firelight shone upon her smoky face, with its one-striped cheek of gorgeous brilliancy, it was plainly the Princess Bob and no other. Not a word was spoken. They had been sitting thus for more than an hour, and there was about their attitude a suggestion that silence was habitual. Once or twice the man rose and walked up and down the narrow room, or gazed absently through the windows of the pilot-house, but never by look or sign betrayed the slightest consciousness of his companion. At such times the princess, from her nest by the fire, followed him with eyes of canine expectancy and wistfulness. But he would as inevitably return to his contemplation of the fire, and the princess to her blinking watchfulness of his face. They had sat there silent and undisturbed for many an evening in fair weather and foul. They had spent many a day in sunshine and storm, gathering the unclaimed spoil of sea and shore. They had kept these mute relations, varied only by the incidents of the hunt or meager household duties for three years, ever since the man, wandering moodily over the lonely sands, had fallen upon the half-starved woman lying in the little hollow where she had crawled to die. It had seemed as if they would never be disturbed, until now, when the princess started, and, with the instinct of her race, 
bent her ear to the ground. The wind had risen and was rattling the tarred canvas, but in another moment there plainly came from without the hut the sound of voices. Then followed a rap at the door, then another rap, and then, before they could rise to their feet, the door was flung briskly open. "'I beg your pardon,' said a pleasant but somewhat decided contralto voice. "'But I don't think you heard me knock. Ah, I see you did not. May I come in?' There was no reply. Had the battered figurehead of the goddess of liberty, which lay deeply embedded in the sand on the beach, suddenly appeared at the door demanding admittance, the occupants of the cabin could not have been more speechlessly and hopelessly astonished than at the form which stood in the open doorway. It was that of a slim, shapely, elegantly dressed young woman. A scarlet-lined silken hood was half thrown back from the shining mass of the black hair that covered her small head. From her pretty shoulders dropped a fur cloak, only restrained by a cord and tassel in her small gloved hand. Around her full throat was a double necklace of large white beads, that by some cunning feminine trick relieved with its infantile suggestion the strong decision of her lower face. Did you say yes? Ah, thank you. We may come in, Barker. Here a shadow in a blue army overcoat followed her into the cabin, touched its cap respectfully, and then stood silent and erect against the wall. Don't disturb yourself in the least, I beg. What a distressingly unpleasant night. Is this your usual climate? Half graciously, half absently overlooking the still embarrassed silence of the group, she went on. We started from the fort over three hours ago. Three hours ago, wasn't it, Barker? The erect Barker touched his cap. To go to Captain Emmons' quarters on Indian Island. I think you call it Indian Island, don't you? She was appealing to the awe-strucken princess. And we got into the fog and lost our way. That is, Barker lost his way. Barker touched his cap deprecatingly. And goodness knows where we didn't wander to until we mistook your light for the lighthouse and pulled up here. No, no, pray keep your seat, do. Really, I must insist. Nothing could exceed the languid grace of the latter part of this speech. Nothing except the easy unconsciousness with which she glided by the offered chair of her stammering, embarrassed host and stood beside the open hearth. Barker will tell you, she continued, warming her feet by the fire, that I am Miss Portfire, daughter of Major Portfire, commanding the post. Ah, excuse me, child. She had accidentally trodden upon the bare yellow toes of the princess. Really, I did not know you were there. I am very near-sighted. In confirmation of her statement, she put to her eyes a dainty double eyeglass that dangled from her neck. It's a shocking thing to be near-sighted, isn't it? If the shamefaced, uneasy man to whom this remark was addressed could have found words to utter the thought that even in his confusion struggled uppermost in his mind, he would, looking at the bold dark eyes that questioned him, have denied the fact. But he only stammered, Yes. The next moment, however, 
Miss Portfire had apparently forgotten him and was examining the princess through her glass. And what is your name, child? The princess, beatified by the eyes and eyeglass, showed all her white teeth at once and softly scratched her leg. Bob? Bob, what a singular name. Miss Portfire's host here hastened to explain the origin of the princess's title. Then you are Bob. Eyeglass. No, my name is Gray, John Gray. And he actually achieved a bow where awkwardness was rather the air of imperfectly recalling a forgotten habit. Gray, ah, let me see. Yes, certainly. You are Mr. Gray, the recluse, the hermit, the philosopher, and all that sort of thing. Why, certainly. Dr. Jones, our surgeon, has told me all about you. Dear me, how interesting a rencontre. Lived all alone here for seven, was it seven years? Yes, I, I remember now. Existed quite au naturel, one might say. How odd. Not that I know anything about that sort of thing, you know. I've lived always among people, and am really quite a stranger, I assure you. But honestly, Mr. I beg your pardon, Mr. Gray, how do you like it? She had quietly taken his chair and thrown her cloak and hood over its back, and was now thoughtfully removing her gloves. Whatever were the arguments, and they were doubtless many and profound, whatever the experience, and it was doubtless hard and satisfying enough, by which this unfortunate man had justified his life for the last seven years, somehow they suddenly became trivial and terribly ridiculous before this simple and practical question. Well, you shall tell me all about it after you have given me something to eat. We will have time enough. Barker cannot find his way back in this fog tonight. Now don't put yourselves to any trouble on my account. Barker will assist. Barker came forward. Glad to escape the scrutiny of his guest, the hermit gave a few rapid directions to the princess in her native tongue and disappeared in the shed. Left a moment alone, Miss Portfire took a quick, half-audible feminine inventory of the cabin. Books, guns, skins, one chair, one bed, no pictures, and no looking-glass. She took a book from the swinging shelf and resumed her seat by the fire as the princess re-entered with fresh fuel. But while kneeling on the hearth, the princess chanced to look up and met Miss Portfire's dark eyes over the edge of her book. Bob! The princess showed her teeth. Listen, would you like to have fine clothes, rings, and beads like these? To have your hair nicely combed and put up so? Would you? The princess nodded violently. Would you like to live with me and have them? Answer quickly. Don't look around for him. Speak for yourself, would you? Hush, never mind now. The hermit re-entered, and the princess blinking retreated into the shadow of the whaleboat shed, from which she did not emerge, even when the homely repast of cold venison, ship biscuit, and tea was served. Miss Portfire noticed her absence. You really must not let me interfere with your usual simple ways. Do you know this is exceedingly interesting to me? so pastoral and patriarchal and all that sort of thing. 
I must insist upon the princess coming back. Really, I must. But the princess was not to be found in the shed, and Miss Portfire, who the next minute seemed to have forgotten all about her, took her place in the single chair before an extemporized table. Barker stood behind her, and the hermit leaned against the fireplace. Miss Portfire's appetite did not come up to her protestations. For the first time in seven years it occurred to the hermit that his ordinary victual might be improved. He stammered out something to that effect. "'I have eaten better, and worse,' said Miss Portfire, quietly. "'But I thought you—that is, you said—' "'I spent a year in the hospitals when father was on the Potomac,' returned Miss Portfire composedly. After a pause, she continued. "'You remember after the second bull run? But, dear me, I beg your pardon, of course. You know nothing about the war and all that sort of thing, and don't care.' She put up her eyeglass and quietly surveyed his broad muscular figure against the chimney. Or perhaps your prejudices... But then, as a hermit, you know you have no politics, of course. Please don't let me bore you. To have been strictly consistent, the hermit should have exhibited no interest in the topic. Perhaps it was owing to some quality in the narrator but he was constrained to beg her to continue in such phrases as his unfamiliar lips could command. So that, little by little, Miss Portfire yielded up incident and personal observation of the contest then raging. With the same half-abstracted, half-unconcerned air that seemed habitual to her, she told the stories of privation, of suffering, of endurance, and of sacrifice with the same assumption of timid deference that concealed her great self-control she talked of principles and rights apparently without enthusiasm and without effort of which his morbid nature would have been suspicious she sang the great american iliad in a way that stirred the depths of her solitary auditor to its massive foundations then she stopped and asked quietly where is bob the hermit started he would look for her, but Bob, for some reason, was not forthcoming. Search was made within and without the hut, but in vain. For the first time that evening Miss Portfire showed some anxiety. Go, she said to Barker, and find her. She must be found. Stay, give me your overcoat. I'll go myself. She threw the overcoat over her shoulders and stepped out into the night. In the thick veil of fog that seemed suddenly to enwrap her, she stood for a moment irresolute, and then walked toward the beach, guided by the low wash of waters on the sand. She had not taken many steps before she stumbled over some dark crouching object. Reaching down her hand, she felt the coarse wiry mane of the princess. Bob! There was no reply. "'Bob, I've come looking for you. Come.' "'Go away.' "'Nonsense, Bob. I want you to stay with me tonight. Come.' "'Injun squaw, no good for wadgy woman. Go away.' "'Listen, Bob. You are the daughter of a chief. So am I. Your father had many warriors. So has mine. It is good that you stay with me. Come.' 
The princess chuckled and suffered herself to be lifted up. A few moments later, and they re-entered the hut hand in hand. With the first red streaks of dawn the next day, the erect Barker touched his cap at the door of the hut. Beside him stood the hermit, also just risen from his blanketed nest in the sand. Forth from the hut, fresh as the morning air, stepped Miss Portfire, leading the princess by the hand. Hand in hand also they walked to the shore, and when the princess had been safely bestowed in the stern sheets, Miss Portfire turned and held out her own to her late hosts. "'I shall take the best care of her, of course. You will come and see her often. I should ask you to come and see me, but you are a hermit, you know, and all that sort of thing. But if it's the correct, anchorite thing, and can be done, my father will be glad to requite you for this night's hospitality. But don't do anything on my account that interferes with your simple habits. Good-bye. She handed him a card, which he took mechanically. Good-bye. The sail was hoisted, and the boat shoved off. As the fresh morning breeze caught the white canvas, it seemed to bow a parting salutation. There was a rosy flash of promise on the water, and as the light craft darted forward toward the ascending sun, it seemed for a moment uplifted in its glory. Miss Portfire kept her word. If thoughtful care and intelligent kindness could regenerate the princess, her future was secure and it really seemed as if she were for the first time inclined to heed the lessons of civilization and profit by her new condition an agreeable change was first noticed in her appearance her lawless hair was caught in a net and no longer strayed over her low forehead her unstable bust was stayed and upheld by french corsets her plantigrade shuffle was limited by heeled boots her dresses were neat and clean and she wore a double necklace of glass beads. With this physical improvement there also seemed some moral awakening. She no longer stole nor lied. With the possession of personal property came a respect for that of others. With increased dependence on the word of those about her came a thoughtful consideration of her own. Intellectually she was still feeble, although she grappled sturdily with the simple lessons which Miss Portfire set before her. But her zeal and simple vanity outran her discretion, and she would often sit for hours with an open book before her, which she could not read. She was a favorite with the officers at the fort, from the major, who shared his daughter's prejudices, and often yielded to her powerful self-will, to the subalterns, who liked her none the less that her natural enemies, the frontier volunteers, had declared war against her helpless sisterhood. The only restraint put upon her was the limitation of her liberty to the enclosure of the fort and parade, and only once did she break this parole, and was stopped by the sentry as she stepped into a boat at the landing. The recluse did not avail himself of Miss Portfire's invitation, but after the departure of the princess he spent less of his time in the hut, and was more frequently seen in the distant marshes of Eel River and on the upland hills. A feverish restlessness, quite opposed to his usual phlegm, 
led him into singular freaks strangely inconsistent with his usual habits and reputation. The pursuer of the occasional steamer which stopped at Logport with the mails reported to have been boarded, just inside the bar, by a strange bearded man who asked for a newspaper containing the last war telegrams. He tore his red shirt into narrow strips and spent two days with his needle over the pieces and the tattered remnant of his only white garment. And a few days afterward the fisherman on the bay was surprised to see what, on nearer approach, proved to be a rude imitation of the national flag floating from a spar above the hut. One evening, as the fog began to drift over the sand hills, the recluse sat alone in his hut. The fire was dying unheeded on the hearth, for he had been sitting there for a long time, completely absorbed in the blurred pages of an old newspaper. Presently he arose and, refolding it, an operation of great care and delicacy in its tattered condition, placed it under the blankets of his bed. He resumed his seat by the fire, but soon began drumming with his fingers on the arm of his chair. Eventually this assumed the time and accent of some air. Then he began to whistle softly and hesitatingly, as if trying to recall a forgotten tune. Finally this took shape in a rude resemblance, not unlike that which his flag bore to the national standard, to Yankee Doodle. Suddenly he stopped. There was an unmistakable rapping at the door. The blood, which had at first rushed to his face, now forsook it and settled slowly around his heart. He tried to rise, but could not. Then the door was flung open, and a figure with a scarlet-lined hood and fur mantle stood on a threshold. With a mighty effort he took one stride to the door. The next moment he saw the wide mouth and wide teeth of the princess, and was greeted by a kiss that felt like a baptism. To tear the hood and mantle from her figure in the sudden fury that seized him, and to fiercely demand the reason of this masquerade, was his only return to her greeting. "'Why are you here? Did you steal these garments?' he again demanded in her guttural language, as he shook her roughly by the arm. The princess hung her head. "'Did you?' he screamed as he reached wildly for his rifle. "'I did.' His hold relaxed, and he staggered back against the wall. The princess began to whimper. Between her sobs, she was trying to explain that the Major and his daughter were going away and that they wanted to send her to the reservation. But he cut her short. Take off those things! The princess tremblingly obeyed. He rolled them up, placed them in the canoe she had just left, and then leaped into the frail craft. She would have followed, but with a great oath he threw her from him and with one stroke of his paddle swept out into the fog and was gone. Jessamy, said the Major, a few days after, as he sat at dinner with his daughter, I think I can tell you something to match the mysterious disappearance and return of your wardrobe. Your crazy friend, the recluse, has enlisted this morning in the 4th Artillery. He's a splendid-looking animal. And there's the right stuff for a soldier in him, if I'm not mistaken. He's in earnest, too, for he enlists in the regiment ordered back to Washington. 
Bless me, child, another goblet broken? You'll ruin the mess in glassware at this rate. Have you heard anything more of the princess, Papa? Nothing. But perhaps it's as well that she has gone. These cursed settlers are at their old complaints again about what they call Indian depredations, and I have just received orders from headquarters to keep the settlement clear of all vagabond aborigines. I am afraid, my dear, that a strict construction of the term would include your protégé. The time for the departure of the 4th Artillery had come. The night before was thick and foggy. At one o'clock a shot on the ramparts called out the guard and roused the sleeping garrison. The new sentry, Private Gray, had challenged a dusky figure creeping on the glacis, and, receiving no answer, had fired. The guard sent out presently returned, bearing a lifeless figure in their arms. The new sentry's zeal, joined with an ex-frontiersman's aim, was fatal. They laid the helpless, ragged form before the guardhouse door, and then saw for the first time that it was the princess. Presently she opened her eyes. They fell upon the agonized face of her innocent slayer, but happily without intelligence or reproach. Georgie, she whispered. Bob, all same now. Me get plenty well soon. Me make no more fuss. Me go to reservation. Then she stopped. A tremor ran through her limbs, and she lay still. She had gone to the reservation. Not that devised by the wisdom of man, but that one set apart from the foundation of the world for the wisest as well as the meanest of his creatures. End of chapter 3